together. Uh, a little bit about myself. Uh, first and foremost, I recognize that I'm a sinner who is saved through Christ alone. But beyond that, my name is Nathan Betway. I am single and 25 years old. I grew up in southern Michigan, south of Ann Arbor and Detroit in the city of Monroe. Um, and in high school, I had um, a desire to pursue bioengineering, but then the Lord worked in my heart uh, with a conviction to proclaim God's word and to see people reconciled to God. And so uh, he pressed upon me the need for pursuing pastoral ministry. And so that led me to uh, undergo a bachelor's at a Christian university kind of in Rochester Hills in biblical studies. And at the moment, I'm now in Grand Rapids at Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary, finishing up a uh, Master of Divinity there. I'm in my final semester. Um, it's been a blessing to be there, been encouraged by the teachers and the brothers and sisters that are there, uh, and grateful that God is good and does good things as he is leading me and as he has been leading those at Puritan as well. Uh, and so thanks be to God for that. Uh, with that said, if you would, please turn with me to Habakkuk, or as the English pronounce it, Habakkuk. Uh, if you're like me, where you don't always have in your mind the order of the Old Testament, if you start with Daniel, you can flip from there to Hosea, to Joel, to Amos, to Obadiah, then to Jonah, and from there it's Micah, Nahum, and then Habakkuk. And this morning, I would like us to look at uh, from chapter 1, verse 12, to the end of chapter 2 and verse 20, looking at Habakkuk's second complaint to the Lord. And so starting in verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time, it hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it, it will surely come, it will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, 
Lying as a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be a spoil for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire, and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What prophet is an idol? when its maker has shaped it. A metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, and to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple, and so let all the earth keep silence before him. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the day so far. We thank you that you allow us to gather together to worship you, to praise you. Help us to have hearts to praise you as we look at your word and give us understanding as we seek to know you more. Help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of you. Help us even more to live by faith, to trust not in ourselves, but in, our, in you. And so be with us, uh, be with me as I uh, proclaim your truths, uh, help them to be impressed upon my own heart as well as all of our hearts, uh, and allow us to bow before you in worshipful faithfulness. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> in the midst of all that we just read, we see that in the midst of a perplexity that the prophet Habakkuk has, he goes to God in prayer, in complaint, and then he finds that God answers his own prayer, his own claim, his own complaint. And even though he might seem distant at times, even though he might seem silent at times, even though he might answer us unexpectedly at times, 
we have this confidence that he surely hears us and answers our prayer and that he is faithful and true to his promises. And by means of introduction, it'll help us to look at what came before chapter 1, verse 12, in the first 11 verses where Habakkuk gives his first complaint to the Lord. In this time period, he's writing in the time of 605 B.C. to 589 B.C., these time periods being uh, framed by Nebuchadnezzar, the great Babylonian king rising to power, conquering over nations. And around 586 B.C., we see Nebuchadnezzar besieging Jerusalem and conquering over the nation of Judah. And between this time, Habakkuk comes to the Lord in prayer. And in this, as Nebuchadnezzar is rising to power, as he's conquering over nations, the nation of Judah itself is being sinful to the Lord. The king Jehoiakim is doing evil in the sight of God, and so are the people, as is laid out throughout the whole chapter of Jeremiah and those contemporary with him. And in verse 2 of chapter 1, seeing all this happening in his time, Habakkuk says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And you will not hear. He sees all this sinfulness in the nation of Judah and says, how long until you allow your justice to be known in the nation of Judah? He's perplexed at God's silence as the king is seemingly prospering in his wickedness and the people are still doing evil in God's sight. And so he asks, how long will you look upon these grievous wrongs, this iniquity, this destruction and violence that's going on? And so God responds in verses 5 to 11. And he says, look among the nations, behold, be astounded and see. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told. And what is this work? He's saying that he will raise up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth and seized dwellings that are not their own, with their horses that are swifter than leopards and their men that are more fierce than evening wolves and their horsemen that seem to fly even greater than the eagles. He says, Behold, I raise up these Chaldeans to judge the nation of Judah, to judge the people who are sinning against me. He says, that these terrible, dreadful sinners of Chaldeans will bring about God's judgment. And this in answer to Habakkuk's complaint, how long, O Lord, till you answer, till you act in my sight, in the eyes of those who are before you. This being the context, then, we see that in Habakkuk's second complaint, we're to trust in the everlasting faithful God and look to him and his word knowing that the just shall live by faith that the righteous shall live by faith and by one's faith one shall live and if you're wanting points as we go along we first see in Habakkuk's second complaint our complaint to God as we make sense of God's will and as we watch for God's answer and from that, 
as God responds to Habakkuk, we see that God responds to us, emphatically expressing that the unjust shall face a woeful end, but the just shall live by faith. And so throughout this, Habakkuk is making his complaint, just as we make our complaints. And we see that God responds to Habakkuk, and we see that he responds even to us through his word. So then if you'll look at me again at verses 12 to 13. Hearing that the righteous God will raise up these wicked Chaldeans for judgment, he says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallow up the one who is more righteous than he? He prays to the Lord, to our God, to the Holy One, to the rock, literally the almighty God, who is from everlasting, who is eternal, who is of pure eyes, who cannot look idly at sin and cannot do wrong, he says, why do you then allow these wicked sinners to be the ones to judge the nations of Judah? He's perplexed. He sees that sin must be judged with the nation of Judah, but then he steps back and says, wait a minute. You're telling me that these wicked men are going to be the ones to bring about your judgment? How can that be? It would be like seeing someone that we know personally sinning in their lives if they're lying or greedy. And we ask, how long till you work in their hearts? And then God provides the answer of, oh, I'll bring a thief to come in the night to steal all their possessions, or I'll have a murderer come to bring judgment upon them. It would be like, why are you doing such things Why are you allowing the wicked to seemingly prosper over the righteous? And so he says, how long? Why do you do this? Are you not from everlasting? Are you not of purer eyes? And this intensifies as we recognize the utter paganness, the utter violent, destructive nature of the Chaldeans themselves, them worshiping a pantheon of gods, as they conquered nation by nation throughout time, acting as though they are fishermen dragging in nets, people and nations to feast upon them and devour them, taking into their own possession what is theirs and making it their own. And this is what he's getting at in verses 15 to 17 of Habakkuk 1, where he says that the Chaldeans bring all the nations up with a hook and that the Chaldean drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet and so he rejoices and is glad and seemingly worships his own strength, his own means of bringing about violence. They seem to live in luxury and prosperity and he questions why God will you allow these nations to keep emptying their net before them and to keep mercilessly killing nations. In history, they were once subjected to Assyria, but 
as Nebuchadnezzar came to power, they conquered over Assyria. They conquered over the nation of Egypt in time as well. And then we see that they shall pan towards the nation of Judah itself and that God says they shall even conquer God's people in a sense. Even though they're not truly acting as God's people because they sin against him, he reveals that the Chaldeans shall even conquer over the nation that God has promised to uh, bless with his promises. And how often do we see this in our own lives today? We see such violence going on, such sin going on, that we ask ourselves and ask to God, why, God, do you allow these things to happen? Why, God, do you not act in what we think to be a more righteous way? Why do you not bring about justice now? We see such division in our families and our schools and our workplaces, and we ask, why is there not a unity? Why do you not humble the hearts of those that we know and bring them to you and cause them to be exalted by your power and your love? We see violence going on amongst nations as they war against each other for various reasons. And we ask, why, God, is there all this violence going on, all this death and destruction? Why do you not allow peace to reign now and everyone to live peaceably with one another? And we see throughout scripture that God promises health to us. He promises joy to us. He promises to comfort us and to console us to forgive us of our sins and have an assurance in that. And we ask, why, God, then, do you allow us to feel so depressed at times, to feel so anxious about what is going on in our lives, to feel so burdened by our sin? And why, then, do you allow these people who do not feel such things to prosper, to gain money, to be seemingly prosperous in this world with power and authority why do you allow such things to happen why do you not allow the righteous to prosper why do you not allow us to be purely healthy and purely seeking after your righteousness without sinning why do you allow such things to happen and if you'll look with me the psalmist expresses this same thing as well Looking at Psalm 13 in the first couple verses there, David himself says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? We see this perpetual, How long, O Lord, until you shall do what you have promised you will do. And if you turn even more to chapter 94, to Psalm 94, in the first three verses there, along similar lines, we read this, O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. O oh Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? God says that the righteous shall live, but we see 
in this world that the wicked seemingly seem to live. And so we ask, how long? Why? And to press this even further, we can ask, why did God allow Christ to die upon the cross? If you'll listen to me as I read uh, the account of the thief on the cross in, chap- in Luke chapter 23, the one who was crucified with Jesus as the other one crucified seemed to rebuke Christ saying, save yourself. The thief says, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation and we indeed justly for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Christ himself, who was without sin, who was perfectly righteous, he was humiliated and afflicted and crucified and killed, condemned as a sinner upon the cross. And oh, how this should pierce us to our hearts, should cut us deep and say, why, God, does the wicked prosper? Why, God, does the righteous not seem to live? Why did you allow Christ to die, this perfect one? And we who are less righteous, we die too. Why, O oh God, is this? And so this is Habakkuk making sense of God's will, recognizing his holiness, his goodness, and yet seeing this impending doom, this wrath to come of the Chaldeans. And so he makes this complaint to the Lord. And yet in this, he watches for God's answer. Reading from Habakkuk again in verse 1 of chapter 2. Expressing all these things, he says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. In his mind, he's saying, even though I don't understand, I know that you hear me, O God, and that you will make me to understand, that you can allow me to understand your will, your truths. And so he resolutely watches for what God will say. It's interesting that in watching, it's not just watching for something physical in the sense of watching for God coming or watching for a person coming with the words of the Lord. But he says, I look for your words, for what you, you will say out of your mouth. I look for this and I long for this with all my heart. And so I station myself on this watchtower and I will look out as though I wait for a herald coming in with a message, whether of triumph or defeat. I wait to know what you shall say to me. And even in this, even if he's corrected or rebuked, he says, oh, I will wait upon you for your word. He understands that by his answer, even though he might not fully understand, he's willing to be corrected by God to understand, all right, this is what God has determined. This is what he shall do, even though I might not like it myself in its fullness. I understand it's for your glory and our good ultimately. And so I wait, I look, and I listen for your word. 
And the comforting thing is, is that God indeed does answer those who pray to him. Just as Paul on the road to Damascus was praying, God had seen him and said, Behold, this one is praying, go to him. And so the Lord himself with Habakkuk directly answers him in his complaint. And what is this answer? That ultimately is to rend us silent. Even Habakkuk himself, he's supposed, he ends up being silent according to God's word. And God himself says, Write this vision that I'll tell you. Make it plain on tablets so that he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end and it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come and it will not delay. And so we see that God shall fulfill his word. He shall execute justice in its appointed time. He says, I will do so, but in my way and in my time. And so you must wait upon me. You must come to me daily and look to me, still watching for me, because I will do so, but I will do it according to my time, not necessarily your time, but to my time, God says. And in this, just as Moses was told in Deuteronomy to make plain God's law upon the stone tablets, so here God tells Habakkuk, write this vision that I'm to tell you, make it plain so that he who reads it runs with it, who the one who shall look to it, he shall go to others and proclaim what God has revealed. That's the intention. It's not necessarily that it's so big in the letters themselves that someone can just easily read it. It's more make it easily known, make it plain to our understandings. According to my revelation, God says, so that the one who reads it may run and tell others of what I, God, have said. And we see that God does not lie. He is truly good. He shall come and shall fulfill his word. We see that the coming one shall not delay, and the vision itself shall surely come. And this then is an encouragement for us to be watchful and pray and to wait for God's word. Amidst all our circumstances, we say, God, we will wait upon you, and we will look to your word waiting for its fulfillment, even though the righteous do not seem to live. We know because of your word that the righteous shall live. And the wicked themselves, even though they seem to live now, they shall be judged, they shall perish, they shall ultimately die according to your word, according to your righteous and holy word. And all this being climaxed in verse 4, that contains that great gospel statement where God says, the righteous, the just, shall live by his faith. He says that, behold, his soul is puffed up. The wicked soul is puffed up and is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith in God. In mercy, God says, the just shall live by faith, and the unjust shall die in their unfaith. 
We see that the righteous might be oppressed, opposed, slain in this world, yet the wicked themselves shall perish and the righteous themselves shall live. This then being the revelation of God, revealing his righteousness from faith to faith, but also revealing his wrath against all unrighteousness and all ungodliness. We see all this is meant to draw us to himself, to draw us to faith so that we might not perish as the wicked shall perish. So we see now God's complaint or God's answer to our complaint. We ourselves praying to God, asking for his knowledge, asking for his will to be known, to be revealed. And yet, God answers, and in doing so, he says, the unjust shall face a woeful fate, but the just shall live by faith. And it's uh, very humbling to see that the unjust shall face a woeful fate. They're pronounced woe upon woe upon woe upon woe upon woe. This fivefold woe comes upon the wicked sinner. And why is this? It's because the soul itself is so naturally lifted up in pride and in unbelief. We see that people in this world, we see even in our own lives at times, that we can so easily swell up and be puffed up in pride. We can say, oh, we ourselves are so strong, we can do this thing. Or we are so smart, we can understand this thing. Or I'm so charming and gifted, I can persuade others of such a thing. Or I myself am so trustworthy in myself, so invigorated in my own life that I don't need anyone else. I can just look to me and myself and I can claim, oh, I'm the captain of my soul and the master of my own faith, of my own fate and my own faith. I don't need to look to others. I don't need to look to God. I can look to myself. And yet God says, no, I am the true captain of souls. I am the master of everything and of all. And I say, God says, the wicked shall be destroyed. He says, woe to the one who is puffed up, because the one who's puffed up is not upright before God. And so we see woe upon woe upon woe upon woe upon woe. Just to look at it very plainly, verse 6, woe to him who, eat, who heaps up what is not his own. Verse 9, woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high. Verse 12, woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Verse 15, woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You who pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. And in verse 19, woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, and to a silent stone, arise. And so we see these sins just laid out so plainly. And he says, woe upon those who strive after such things. To express it in a more modern sense, God reveals this. If you seem to 
be prideful and greedy and taking everything to yourself. He says, alas, I shall cause you to be plundered. I shall cause you to lose what you have because you trust in your own strength and in what you have taken for your own possessions. He says, if you shall seek your own benefit, behold, I shall cause you to be humbled. I shall cause you to be brought into humility. We see that the one who builds up oneself or to builds up a community upon blood and iniquity, he says that this shall be brought to shame, that this shall be superseded by God's glory, and that God himself will cause it to be destroyed as God builds up his own glory, his own church. We see that if one shall seek after being drunk or seek after that which is shameful and causing others to do shameful things as well, he says, I shall uncover you in your shame and cause you to be judged. And we see that those who seek after other gods, after things beyond God, who seek their own selves, seek their own idols of their own hearts, whether that be pride or greed or idolatry, he says that you shall be judged by me who resides in my holy temple. And in all this, he says, woe unto the sinner for justice shall come. My justice shall reign. My righteousness shall come upon all peoples and you will be swallowed up yourselves by my wrath if you do not turn from these sinful ways. And we need to be honest in our examinations of these things. Do we ourselves do such things? Do we think along these lines? Do you and I desire such things for our lives and in our lives, even if it's not as blatantly wicked or outrightly iniquitous as the Chaldeans? Do you have these things characterizing your lives and your minds and your hearts? Ultimately, do you view yourself as better than God? Do you view yourself as deserving these things because of yourself rather than of God blessing them upon you? We must ask, where is our heart? Where is our life? What do we trust in? And if we're honest, we see that we all deserve such judgment. As Paul in Romans says, we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. We all are rendered silent and guilty of sin. And so in each of these things, even though it might not be as sinful as it could be, it might not be as um, demonstrated in our lives, in our acts, we say, must say, yes, we have done such things or we do think such things and so you and I deserve judgment whether it be our thoughts our actions what we say what we do we see that sin must be judged and that justice shall come and so the one who remains in woe in this woeful condemnation there shall be judgment and condemnation and death to such a one and this 
must lead us to look to God in faith, to live by faith. And this is the glorious comfort that comes from that gospel statement. The righteous shall live by his faith. It's so captivated Paul and the author of Hebrews that it's cited directly again and again and again with this comfort that the righteous shall live by faith. It's not our own strength, for if it's in our own strength, we confide. We see that our striving is losing, but yet, if the right man be on our side, if the man of God's own choosing be on our side, then we see that he wins the battle, and so we can live by faith in this one, in Christ, looking to him, looking to the righteousness of God as revealed in Christ, rather than our own righteousness. And so we see that the righteous, the just, shall live by his faith, by faith. By God's faithfulness, we shall live. And by our faith in God, we shall live. And this is important. If you know anything about Luther and his own conversion as he was looking at Romans 1, 16 to 17, where this is directly cited, you understand how pressing this is upon the heart, how it sinks deep within us if we truly understand what is being said here. And to lay it out before you, we see first this, that God says the righteous shall live. And if we're honest with ourselves, if we see our own sin, if we see the sin of others, we say, oh, woe is me, for I stand before a holy God. I see the righteousness of God revealed, and I say, how can I, an unjust sinner, live? How can I, a sinner, live before a just God? If God is so holy and just, I deserve to be wiped out and destroyed and to perish because I see that I am not righteous. I am not just. I sin, and I sin, and I sin to the point that I can see in my own heart as I compare myself to others that I am, in a sense, the chief of sinners, because I know my own heart most and I see its own wickedness. And so how can I stand? How fiercely this presses upon us. How it wounds and troubles our consciences. And so we see holy punishment threatened upon us. We're crushed and laid miserable underneath the law of God. And we say, what hope for me is there to live then? I lay myself before you, for I cannot live by my own righteousness. And yet we see that the righteous shall live by his faith. And oh, what cause of joy this is, how this allows us to rejoice, because we see that it is not of us, but it is by faith, not necessarily our own believing, but in God himself showing mercy to us in our unjust state we are declared and made righteous by the just and living god we see that it is a gift of this merciful god that we can live and be declared righteous we see that it is by faith and ultimately by christ that we can live and that we this being the grounds for us living in our own lives today So evident in the gospel, we see that Jesus was condemned for 
the sinful, him being sinless. We see that he suffered in our place, bearing the wrath of God, taking the punishment for sin, himself being accursed as he was crucified upon the cross. And yet he's vindicated by the spirit. He's raised up by divine power and glorified to the right hand of the father. At the cross, we see that he's crushed by the father himself, and yet he's risen up by the father and exalted to his right hand. And it is only in him and by him and through him that we can live. This being an unshakable hope and enduring foundation that the righteous shall live by faith. And so in this, we're to understand that it is believing in God that we are accounted as righteous, just as Abraham believed in God. So we also must believe in God looking to him alone. We entrust ourselves to God and embrace his promises as they're revealed. It's more than just knowing that God exists or believing that God's word is true. Yes, that is important, but what's more important is submitting to God's word and believing in what God has said. Even if that means saying, yes, I am a sinner, I deserve to die, but I come to you as you call us, as you draw me, I draw myself to you and say, God, be merciful to me. Allow me to live by your righteousness. Because if it's my own righteousness, I shall not live. I trust not in myself, but in Christ. And with this Christ, I am willing to die at the throne of Christ if it means living by his grace. If it means living to God, even if it means my own death and humility. And we see then it is by faith we shall live. And it's been an encouragement to live by faith. Myself, you, those others who might be listening, we must look to God and live by faith. And may God help us to live by faith. How wondrous it is that by faith, one can be justified rather than given over to wrath. How glorious it is that you can receive life rather than be condemned. How magnificent it is that we all, I include, can endure by faith rather than fall away. And I'm not drawing this from my own inclination. I'm not speaking to you some insights that I myself have gleaned. It's more looking at what God has revealed in his word and saying these are the promises that we can cling to and we can cling to Christ for our lives and so we live our lives accordingly to just do a very brief rapid succession of what the New Testament says in light of such a verse Romans 1 16 to 17 Paul himself says I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. We see that one is justified by faith, ourselves being powerless. God is powerful and so allows us to live by faith with the hope of eternal life in Christ. 
in the gospel. We can have light in him and live by him. Looking at Galatians 3, Paul again iterates, All who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Not only do we see that, again, that we're justified by faith, but we're to also live by faith. In the context of Galatians, he's saying, look, don't now live by works since you were justified by faith. Continue to live by faith and don't look to your works. Don't seek your own righteousness, but look again to the righteousness of God and say, oh, how I need Christ, and so I look to him daily, I pray to him daily, I seek him daily and live by him daily. And in this daily walk of life, the author of Hebrews himself in chapter 10 there expresses this starting in verse 32. He explains that there's those who have endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated for you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. There's this hope of the coming one coming. The coming one shall come. Here he's looking to Christ has come in his first coming, and he shall come again in his second coming. And so we look by faith to him, enduring by faith, in light of this reward that we shall receive by faith if we endure by faith even though one might suffer and be afflicted and be plundered and be slain even, we see that God lifts one up and says, you shall live by faith if you do not shrink away. And so we're to endure by faith. Again, it's we can be justified by faith. And so we seek to live continually by faith. And in that continual living, we always try to endure by faith, not in our own strength, but in the strength of Christ looking to him and his righteousness and his life, entrusting ourselves completely to him. And we see that God is our life and our all, and so we rejoice and have great hope. And so you and I must entrust ourselves to this one if we do not do so already. We must embrace his truths and humble our lives before them. We must all keep silent before our great God, not boasting in our life, in our faith, in ourselves, but die to ourselves and therefore live to Christ, live to God, and say, oh, I live only because you 
grant it because you save me and deliver me from dying and perishing and living in sin. And so we live and seek to live boldly in our lives. Spurgeon and Lloyd-Jones said this about George Whitfield, that though some men existed, though some men were half alive, Whitfield lived because he had such a great faith in God. He so sought to seek the salvation of sinners. And what's great is that we have the same God and we can live by the same faith. And so we must seek salvation from him first. And in that we must be moved by his love to seek the salvation of others. We seek to live by faith in all aspects, whether it's at home or in our workplaces or at school or in our personal lives, whatever it is, we seek to live by faith. And so then I leave you with this, this uh, encouragement to live because it is by faith you shall live and so live by faith. Though you might say, woe is me because of my sin, because of seeing the wicked prosper now in this life, how much more devastating it'll be if you are told by God, woe is you, woe to you in the life to come. And so we seek salvation now, not through ourselves, not through the world, but through Christ because he saves and is gracious and willing to save. His fulfillment of the gospel of his word shall come and he shall come again. And so our prayer is this, that we might live by faith. Uh, pray with me as we go to God in prayer. Oh Lord, we see our sin in our hearts, how wicked we are, how puffed up we can be. We ask that you might forgive us of our sins, might help us to seek you by faith, to live by faith, to entrust ourselves to you, to cast ourselves upon you for salvation and for our own lives. Work within us to continue to pray to you, to seek to worship you with a faithful heart knowing that we can cast our lives upon you and cast the things of our lives to you, watching for your word to be fulfilled with an expectant hope of you coming again. Allow us to live by faith and to look to you. In your name we pray, amen.